Sprouta is a global ecosystem of the very best experts and solution providers within people, performance, and culture. Companies like CultureAmp, VegaFactor, XOWorks, and many more ready to help you solve your toughest organizational challenges. Every strategic partner is chosen for their deep expertise within their fields and is supercharged by the Sprouta ecosystem. The result? You have a place to go for solutions that are holistic, impactful, and sustainable. No more fragmented transformation or trade-offs. Find solutions that are purpose-fit for your needs. Visit Sprouta.com to learn more. Hello again, and welcome back to the Humanity Works podcast. I'm your host, Coulter Craig, and so glad to have you back with us for today's episode with Kate Pounder, CEO of the Tech Council of Australia. The Tech Council of Australia is a relatively new body formed by the leaders of Australia's tech ecosystem designed to provide a collective voice to governments on tech sector issues. And this began in 2021 with only 25 member organizations and has quickly grown to over 125 today. And their goal is to make Australia the best place to start and scale a tech organization. So look, we've been talking to a lot of leaders this season, but my conversation with Kate was unique. And that is because most of these conversations have been with leaders focused internally on organizations. But with Kate, the conversation was much broader. Her work is focused on the entire tech ecosystem that all of these organizations operate within. So she's working at the policy level. Now, Kate leads an organization like many leaders, but so much of her work is across multiple stakeholders and multiple objectives, which means that she does not have the standard levers that most leaders can lean on, like money or influence or reward, to directly leverage. And in my opinion, it requires the most pure form of leadership. In many ways, this speaks to the leadership that we all need to leverage moving forward, especially as we experience more decentralization. Another unique aspect of our conversation was around how the things that we have and don't have growing up can shape us in unique and interesting ways, which can translate into how we approach our work and careers. A few other key points that we hit on during our conversation, one, thinking collectively about things like data, privacy, security across an entire industry. We had a particularly enlightening conversation around what it is that makes the Australian tech industry unique, as well as her take on what we need to be thinking about to ensure that we are building for a diverse tech workforce at scale. I think I was always fascinated by the things that bring a community together at scale, partly because I was on the one hand growing up in these really tiny towns that just didn't have access to newspapers or TV channels, as I said, or or radio. Um, But then I kind of had my home life was very rich in conversation and stories about the rest of the world. So, but also I like to talk about it because I think sometimes people have a perception that, you know, you can only get into these roles if you were living in cities or if you went and did a technical degree or you went to a private school, like, and none of those things were true for me. And I think unless you got kind of open about that, they just can feed preconceptions about how you can get into industries. So I imagine for most of you like me, this conversation will open your eyes to a perspective on our workplace culture and ecosystem that we exist within but don't often see. But nonetheless, these policy level decisions impact us all. It also is a great reflection on the purest form of leadership, which is leading people through vision and finding collective areas for agreement, which ultimately form the alignment it takes to get things done at the systemic level. So thanks again for joining us and enjoy the conversation with Kate Pounder. Three, two, one.
Hey, Kate, thank you so much for being with us today on Humanity Works. It's such an honor to have you with us. Welcome. Uh, exciting to have you here. How are you doing? I'm really well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I have to imagine some people will listen to this that don't know much about you. So why don't you give us a little bit kind of personal, professional, bring us up to speed on who you are and what are you doing today? Uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there. I might start at the beginning because I think it's an important part of my story. So I grew up in incredibly small country towns in a state called South Australia, including places that had virtually no technology when I was growing up there. So, for example, one of the towns I lived in was the last town in the country that was still on a manual telephone exchange when I was living there. We didn't have routinely TV stations or, or radio stations or other things. But I always kind of loved the world and was keen to explore. I had parents who traveled a lot. I think that made me appreciate the value of community and, you know, the value of things that you didn't have, like um, technology in your communities, but also excited me about the potential of the world. And so um, from there, I, I started my career in Australia's federal government working in communications and technology policy, which I did for about five years. I then went to work for one of Australia's commercial broadcasters at a very instrumental time for the TV industry when they were going through a major transition to digital, when there was this disruption of the industry. And it, that resulted in me ultimately losing my job when um, there was a big ownership change and they came in and did a big cost-cutting exercise. So I'd spent 10 years you know, building this very specific specialist career in broadcasting regulation and then it just evaporated under my feet and it happened when I was on mat leave with my second daughter. So I was at home with a three-month-old baby and a, you know, and a 17-month-old toddler and that prompted me to one day apply for a job doing tech policy that I happened to see in the paper um, and that led to me making this mid-career change into being really focused on tech policy. And But that experience also was kind of pivotal because I thought that a lot of public policy leaders didn't necessarily go and develop commercial skills or people management skills. They get sort of taught to do media and develop public policy positions and advocate, but they don't necessarily learn business skills. And so I left my job thinking that I was going to go and get an MBA, but instead happened to meet the managing partner of McKinsey at a conference and he mm. convinced me to, to basically apply to them, which I did. So I then had a seven-year period where I um, I worked for them and then I went to work for a startup analytics firm to found their federal government office and we pioneered a lot of work looking at how you could use data in public policy. We were bought out by Accenture and it let me develop a whole set of skills and have a whole set of experiences I wouldn't have otherwise encountered. But I got to the end of the seven-year period and thought, I really want to go back to my first love of public policy. And then my current job happened to come up very serendipitously, which is to be the CEO of a new industries association focused on um, the tech sector in Australia, and that's um, the Tech Council. And I was really grateful for that opportunity because I think it's such a wonderful industry. It's creating lots of jobs, building lots of products, very creative. There's a wonderful culture in the industry. And, you know, it's a real privilege to get to be an inaugural CEO and, and build a new organization and build those policy positions. That's amazing. And I didn't know your backstory like that. It's neat to see how those all came together where you've merged all of that. Careers take a, a serendipitous sort of path sometimes and it sounds that way for you as well and you mentioned the the tech council of australia anything else just to share for, to catch anybody up that might not be as familiar uh with the tech council of australia so the tech council of australia is the peak industry body representing australia's tech 
sector. It launched in August uh, 2021 and it's grown very rapidly. So we launched with 25 founding members. We've now grown to something like 125 members in a pretty short space of time, which I think highlighted the excitement of the industry to start forming a greater sense of community and start working on having a single united voice. And we play three roles. We do policy and advocacy, research and engagement. So on policy and advocacy, we work with decision makers and the industry to try and resolve some of those big policy questions that technology introduces. And that can be how do we think about creating new jobs? How do we think about training people? It can be regulatory issues such as how do we think about the use of data? How do we think about privacy in the digital economy? How do we think about security? And then it can be around things like tax and investment. So how do we make sure, for example, our research and development tax and models make sense in a world where the primary way people are innovating is now software-based and digitally based as opposed to doing experiments in a lab. Uh, And then in the research sense, we really believe in being data-driven in our work. And I think because we represent new companies and new industries, often people don't necessarily have a good fact base for making decisions. It's one of the hard things actually about making decisions in new areas. So we work really hard to put together a good research program that helps answer some of those questions and fills the gaps in knowledge. And then the third thing we do is engagement because we think that bringing people together is a really good way for governments to understand technology in the industry and industry to understand governments. And um, usually the relationships help you work through any of those complex policy questions that come up. Mm -hmm. Before we go deeper, I want to ask, you mentioned that policy was almost like your first love. You had policy, you kind of drifted from policy and then found your way back. That was one of the things that pulled you back to this. If we're going to go like a level deeper on that, what calls you to policy work? What inspires you when you get out of bed in the morning to do that sort of work? Because at its heart, particularly when you're doing national policy, you really get to think through some of the biggest questions facing a society or a community. And you get to try and solve them at a national level as well. And I think, you know, if you work in a single organisation like a company, you get to focus on that company's mission and that company's products and their customers, and that's also very exciting, but it doesn't always allow you to think about the problem as a whole. You know, and I think if you care about the world and if you're mission-driven, then public policy is often trying to answer whatever those big questions and missions are. And so at the moment that might be, you know, we've just gone through a once-in-a-century pandemic, you know, how has it permanently changed some of the ways we're using technology. Are we going to stick with remote work? Are we moving to hybrid work? What does that mean? It might mean thinking through, have we changed the nature of some people's jobs? How are we making sure that we're still training people and reskilling them so they get those opportunities in life? It might be thinking about whether in the greater focus on geopolitical tensions and security that we're not um, cutting ourselves from very healthy interactions in the world, whether that's exports or migration flows or, or other things. So that's that's why I love public policy because you get to think through those big questions, but also sit down and practically try to answer them and, and implement solutions. Big picture, which is, is fascinating, like looking at that. And then I've seen the list of organizations. So you're pulling all these organizations together, representing them and thinking about these big picture issues. So before we get in and, and, and drill in deeper, I'd love to pull back and ask the question of you of who inspired you early on professionally and why? Again, because I was growing up in really small country towns. There was no one performing any of the jobs that I had. In fact, most of the jobs that I've held in my career didn't exist when I was growing up. Um, so rather than being perhaps inspired by a person with a particular profession or 
a particular vocation, um, my parents were quite a strong influence on me. You know, my dad was a teacher and he had a great love of reading and um, taught me to read before I went to school because he um, focused on literacy. That was his training. So he was kind of practising as he was doing postgraduate study on me because I was sort of a baby at home. But I think that really inspired for me, that love of reading and the love of ideas. And then my mum was someone who uh, from quite an early age had wanted to travel. So she'd actually left school and become an airline hostess and because she wanted to travel the world and there weren't a lot of opportunities um, for women this was in the sort of 60s and 70s to do it other ways and you know she and my father had traveled you know through Afghanistan in a combi van and and through India and through all of these kind of really interesting places and those twin passions really even though I was growing up in quite small towns always made me feel a part of the world and and very excited to explore it and then probably the second inspiration was in my 20s when I came to work in commercial tv I reflect unusually now my boss was uh, a woman and we were in a group of government relations um, senior executives from all of the networks and pretty much everyone in the group was a woman and every woman in it was very passionate and very intelligent and um, very assertive. And so for this five or six year formative period in my career, like all I knew was this role model of of women playing that and I reflect back on and probably how lucky that was because that then shaped how I thought about being a female executive and leader and it was only kind of late in my career I realized that wasn't necessarily typical in business cultures to be so surrounded by these really wonderful Ah. smart passionate women. It's so nice that you had those those role models early on Uh, twice now we've gone back to your childhood and it's a very unique childhood when you were young what did you want to be when you when you grew up? I actually remember uh, being in year eight and I had to write an essay about what I would be doing when I was 64. And I wrote an essay about um, the fact I would be living on a Greek island and I was going to be running an archaeological museum and I was, you know, going to be a writer. Uh, (laughs) It seems like a very strange career aspiration for someone who was living in in a very small town, certainly a long way from Greece, a long way even from the capital city. We're eight hours from our capital city. But I actually sort of morphed that um, into wanting to become a journalist, um, Mm -hmm. which is how I got into, I guess, a passion for comms and technology because then the more I learned about it, the more I thought actually I think what I want is not to be the practising journalist but rather to be the person behind the scenes working on the policy issues related to technology and communications. Well, two things. One is there's still time to get to Greece and to, to be in your archaeological dig. Um, but the other, I think it's really neat how you tied those dots together because I often think about that. We have these unique thoughts when we're young, but sometimes there's a thread, and I think you just hit on that, that does ride through. And many people, if they reflect back, we almost knew what we wanted early, and it's like about getting back to that. Yeah, and I think about, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think it's important in a career to have a compass but not a map in some ways so that you know the things that you're passionate about and what you like doing and the kind of people you like working for but you don't have this prescriptive view of how you're going to do it because that's just impossible sometimes to predict but I think if you have that compass of your values and the things you like doing and the things you know you're not good at then it always helps you make good choices. When you say that I think of at least in my journey when I switched from trying to do something for others or what I was supposed to do and get clear on purpose, which has almost felt like a beacon in a sense that I don't always know the way, but I can always stop and say, how is this aligning me towards the bigger purpose or goal? Um, It it seems that way that we don't always know the path, but if we think this is a prescribed way or chances are it's not going to work out that way. But if we have a 
like I said, the beacon, like out, out in the distance where you're heading, it keeps you on paths at, at, at a sort. This world of public policy is new to me, and it's exciting to learn more about the Tech Council of Australia and its focus on diversity, ensuring equity of access and how they are finding practical pathways to drive systemic change. It's an important remit, and as they meet their goals, it will have a huge impact on Australia's tech scene. But as somebody who thinks a lot about organizational culture and culture in general, this has got me thinking about the culture of public policy, especially when I think about my definition of culture, which is how do we do things around here? And particularly in organizations, how do we do things around here to get things done to achieve our organizational goals? So I'm interested to hear from Kate on how she describes the culture of public policy. I think most people who get into public policy do it because they care about the world and and the mission and the impact on people. So it's genuinely a pretty thoughtful area and it attracts a lot of smart people and committed people. So, you know, there's also that culture of discipline and effort and purpose and um, wanting to make the world a better place, I think is often a big part of public policy cultures. But it's also a culture where you need to be pragmatic because there's no important issue where everyone in the society agrees. And so what you're often having to do is to find consensus and achieving change in public policy is pretty much the hardest place to do it because you've got to, you know, not only reach decisions that a whole community will accept, but you have to work often with lots of different stakeholders and different organisations to get it. So the parliament, for example, will pass a law, but even within that you might have a minister, a cabinet, prime minister in Australia, you'll have an opposition, you'll have different crossbench parties who are voting on it, the advisors in their office. So there's a whole range of people you're coordinating with just on that. And then behind the scenes, you'll have a department preparing legislation or a policy recommendation or financial impacts, often in our case, multiple departments, maybe a line agency, maybe a central agency, maybe multiple agencies. So it's actually a process of you know, trying to work out what the real problem is you're solving for, trying to work out if it's significant enough to warrant an intervention, then trying to work out what the options for those interventions are, uh, and then how do you practically convince everyone to get behind the same solution and kind of roll in, in the same direction to solving it? What you just hit on was coming up for me, which is you have limited direct influence, but you have many, many stakeholders across your the tech organizations themselves around the governmental officials and probably more than I'm than I'm I'm saying. So I'd love to take that as an opportunity from a leadership perspective. Because I think there's a lot to be said about having to lead when there aren't your direct reports, you know, and most of us really that's the true art of leadership. How do you approach leadership when you're dealing with all these stakeholders with different interests, which is right to many people, they're leaders inside organizations same situation at some level. So sometimes in public policy, people get into these quite adversarial positional relationships with each other because they've been negotiating for a long time. Everyone's really clear what this industry wants and, and you know, perhaps what competitors of theirs um, would put as a counter view. But, you know, I think what's different in tech policy is that most of the time we're coming to think through questions. Everyone's doing it for the first time. So no one necessarily comes to the table with, a preconceived understanding or a fixed position, which I think is a really good place to start, actually. But what it means is, so in terms of thinking about leadership, you know, we've thought a lot as an industry about how do we work as an industry to put together a clear position and then make sure that position is backed by evidence and research. So think firstly about what will be the big public policy questions or what are the ingredients that we think it would take to grow the sector in Australia and then put together a really impactful case for change. 
but also an evidence-based one, knowing that most of the time we're walking and we might be telling people for the first time that something is a problem or having to explain the problem because it may not be self-evident. And then just doing that very consistently over time. Like one thing we chose to do when we launched was to set some goals for the country, not just for the industry. We did that because we thought, you know, we can go in and, and have conversations with people about individual policy pieces, but if people don't understand the bigger picture or like what the benefit of this will be and if communities can't see that, then you know people don't know why they're doing it so we've tried to really think about how do we explain what the sector can mean for people's jobs what it can mean for communities um, and then work back to say okay well if we agree they're good outcomes you know what would be the steps we'd have to take to get that outcome I think there's a lot of translation and patience required in our sector and in the leadership just because you have to kind of assume that you might be working with policymakers who are really experts, say, in legislation but don't necessarily know the technology and take the time to explain the technology or its impact to them so they can make better policy. And then equally on the industry side, you might have people who know a lot about technology or business models but don't necessarily know a lot about how government engages. So I think sort of assuming, not starting from a position of if someone people aren't on the same page so it's necessarily because they disagree it might just simply because they don't understand each other and so always just investing that time to to translate and educate you know I think the final thing is just building really strong relationships so I was very lucky when I came into Tech Council because it was founded by someone else Alex McCauley and and he had just built this really wonderful culture that's very collaborative very supportive very positive and you know was very well respected and we've tried to continue that tradition both within the tech council with members but also in our relationships with decision makers because I think people are just humans at the end of the day and often working under a lot of pressure and so just building strong relationships and trusting relationships is often the key of being able to work together constructively. Yeah, I heard. I mean, on that second piece there, just this idea of empathy and trying to understand where everybody is. But the opening piece had me thinking something we see a lot in our data at CultureAmp. Often, one of the top drivers of engagement is a leader's communicative vision that inspires me. And I think that's what you're talking about. How do leaders, the big picture, I think sometimes when people start to feel like, I don't know what I'm working towards. I don't know what this is about. Um, when we lose that, we lose engagement. And it was just interesting hearing that from your work, thinking back to organizations and how these ideas cross over. Now, I opened that question asking you about the culture of policy because that's half of a big piece of what you do. But I'm really excited about this next question as an American that works for an Australian tech company. Um, but with your perspective, I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. And that is what makes Australian tech unique? I think Australia is a home of small tech. SME tech, if you look at the areas of the tech sector where we've been most successful at producing companies, a lot of it has been in B2B software as a service products or enterprise applications, or in the case of Atlassian, in products for IT professionals. But actually, the, the biggest area is in SaaS for SMEs. And uh, that's things like Myob and, and Zero, which is New Zealand, but we can't count them as being in the same <laughs> same team. Um, you know, which is accounting software that's led to a really a blossoming of um, secondary applications in areas like rostering or payroll um, with companies like Deputy or Employment Hero. Um, obviously, Culture Amp has developed uh, employee engagement software. We have. Companies like Safety Culture, which have um, developed workplace health and safety software. So, and, and I think that's important because historically, 
before SaaS, SMEs often just didn't have access to software. Like they didn't, they couldn't afford to buy an ERP and it was so complex and it was all connected and it wasn't built for like small enterprises. So having chatted to some of these founders, like many of them were actually small business owners themselves or they were working with small businesses and they would say it's really crazy that small businesses who might have up to 100 casual staff are spending their weekend trying to chart who they should roster on at different times on a whiteboard or, or in an Excel spreadsheet. And if one person pulls out having to like make all these calls to try and get someone to work. So I think that focus on on software for smaller businesses and that empathy to find those pain points and from those pain points generate global businesses is actually a really nice feature of the Australian tech industry. And you sort of see it, it's a very compassionate industry. Everyone because we're kind of smaller and we sort of know each other, I think as well, you know, the people who were successful early, like the founders of Atlassian or, or Canva or people like Didier, they very much give back to the rest of the industry, to their investors in company. They always make time to mentor people. So it's also got a quite a communal, supportive culture. Again, I, you know, I'm in the Bay Area now. I've been here for 17, 18 years and um, been part of like the tech world for a bit and working for an Australian company and always there's something, there's always something different. I'm always, you know, it's, it's such a fascinating because we're so similar, but there's these subtle cultural differences. And I never, what you just pointed out, I never thought about it in that perspective that I think is particularly in the U S we have, you know, Microsoft and these companies that came up with on-premise and, you know, it, and, and the evolution. And now when you say it like that, I think about the, the Australian companies that aren't, it, it, that I know about, they're inspiring, uh, you know, deputy and Canva the fact that they came up really in the SaaS world and didn't kind of go through that first evolution as much, and the fact that I find so much of it really is built for the end user, built with people in mind, I, you know, and I'm just saying that, it, you know, but I feel that in our work at Culture Amp and how people feel about what we do and how it responds. And I think about Canva when I use it, I'm not a designer. So that's an interesting perspective and in how that may have come to be. I, n- I never thought about it that way. Yeah, it's definitely most of the founders had another job before they were founders you know like Mel was lecturing at a uni in design and Cliff was a teacher and <laughs> at Canva or you know Didier had worked in film and banking and we have companies like ServiceMate which is a doing um sort of invoicing apps and scheduling apps for construction companies and and that came about because one of the founders inherited a locksmith business and then was like realized it was running solely on paper and just thought this is a disaster <laughs> Like and was used to working in well, these. That's a great point too. Like, I, that, <laughs> in the states, I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but you're you're absolutely right that the tech the, the technology development world has been around long enough that people have had full careers through different iterations. Where to your point, it's been a newer reinvention that so many people came from other industries bringing it to this new world of SaaS. <laughs> CultureAmp empowers companies of all sizes and industries to transform employee engagement, develop high-performing teams, and retain talent via cutting-edge research, powerful technology, and the largest employee data set in the world. Want to know how CultureAmp can help you? Explore Sprouta's activation pack full of free tools and resources to help you drive impact. Go to Sprouta.com forward slash activate. One of the things that you mentioned um, that one of the policy focuses for TCA is around talent development. So I want to talk about that, but particularly because it is technology around diversity. So, I mean, we can do both. We made a high level, the objectives and thinking about talent development, but I also want to talk about the approach, what you're thinking about 
how are we engaging a more diverse workforce? How are we bringing more opportunities to people that historically have not had them? Um, it sounds like it's something that you're very involved in, and you can probably provide, provide a policy perspective that I'm not thinking about. So I'd love to just to hear your thoughts on this one. I'm very passionate about this. I think that at a macro level, when we think about tech jobs in the economy, you know, I genuinely think these are enormously important sources of opportunities for people because, and we actually went and did some research in Australia, which backed this up. We looked at survey data, which runs over 20 years longitudinal data, so tracks the same people over a 20 year period. And what we saw was that you know, people who went into tech sector jobs were more likely to be highly paid. Um, we saw that um, they were the most secure jobs in the economy. If you take a person who's worked in a tech job and look where they are at four years and eight years, they're more likely to still be employed versus someone in another high-paying job and certainly more likely than someone um, in the average job across the economy. They had the highest rates of flexible work pre-pandemic and then that's increased again during the pandemic, even though everyone else has has also become more flexible, the, the tech sector has become even more flexible again. And we also saw that there were some really egalitarian features of tech jobs and work so that firstly they're very fast growing so in Australia they've been growing at an average rate of 55 percent since 2005 the average rate of jobs growth is 35 percent so they're a very good area to move into because uh, they're so plentiful um, and I think that adds to the job security and the, the high pay we also know that the barriers to entry are lower than other professional jobs so for example there's more people who come from a public high school than a private high school working in the sector so in Australia that's you know a difference in the school systems um, we know that that the gender pay gap for women is half that of other high paying sectors uh, and similarly the pay gap for someone who's done a vocational qualification as opposed to a tertiary qualification at uni there's only two percentage points in other high paying industries it's about 18 percentage points so basically a lower qualification sees you kind of stuck in more lower paying jobs, but that doesn't hold in the tech sector. So all those things tell you essentially that it's a really good source of opportunity in life, including for people who wouldn't naturally necessarily have the networks or the educational backgrounds or uh, the high socioeconomic status to kind of move into the industry. And I think that makes it a really important force, you know, at a time when people are worried about income inequity and they're worried about job security and, and good jobs declining, it's it's like probably the biggest source of new high value, secure, meaningful jobs in the economy. And, and it's relatively easy to break into if you have the right mindset, if you want to learn, if you're, you're happy to kind of learn skills on the job, it's, it's actually got quite low barriers in some ways to getting into it relative to other occupations. So I think it's actually a really important from an, a social perspective, an economic perspective to get more people into those jobs uh, and but what we know is that it's not always as diverse as it could be so only one in four people working in tech jobs in Australia are female um, it's culturally diverse actually it has like a higher proportion of people who, who might have had English as a second language or speak multiple languages versus other industries um, and the age diversity could be better so it, it tends to skew it to a younger age group getting more people from those underrepresented groups in the sector is really important to give them the same opportunity but I think it's also important if you want to address skill shortages and we have very severe skill shortages and you know if you have such a low proportion of women for example that's naturally going to reduce the pool of people that could work in the industry so there's 
some very practical commercial reasons to increase diversity. And on top of, you know, getting better products and, and having, you know, high-performing teams, which, you know, correlates to diversity, but there's also a broader economic and social benefit. Is there one or two initiatives or things that you're working on that maybe even could translate to others in their work around addressing this? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. We have suggested a digital apprenticeships model, like a modern vocational training model, because we think there's lots of technical roles, particularly in the sector, in software engineering or systems integration, things like that. They don't necessarily need a three to four year degree, but often there isn't a modern vocational option. So we think that would open it up to more people. Um, We've also talked with the government about having a reskilling initiative for women, because we think that what we know is the primary way a woman enters the tech sector in Australia is as an early to mid-career transition between 25 to 30 or through skilled migration, that the portion of women who come from technical degrees into the sector is really low, partly because there's like a huge skew in the number of women who take those degrees in Australia. So we've said we think presuming that's the primary pathway for women to come into the sector at least for the next decade because that's how long it would take to perhaps increase the pipeline of of women training in those other degrees that's really essential and therefore rethinking training models because assuming you're designing the training for someone who might already have a job who might have some caring responsibilities and making sure you know and helping them understand the jobs that exist and believing that they they could be really interesting jobs and and knowing the pathways into them. We think that actually takes some quite purposeful design. Yeah. I really appreciated how you bridged the data and the analysis, but back to this idea of purpose and made the case really well of, let's just look at the numbers. The, you know, a job's a job, but these jobs are particularly high in opportunity and can have a game-changing effect. And if we continue to only put the same people in those roles, we are putting that, you know, that those opportunities, again, we continue to perpetuate this and there's an opportunity. And even when you're talking about things we can do, even if a company set up an apprenticeship program and maybe didn't hire those people, what you're then doing is they will have the skills to then move and start to get into those roles and that everybody can do something here. And it doesn't have to be just go hire certain people. It can be around how you think about it internally and all you, how you how do you support the greater the greater good? So I just I appreciate how you called that out. It it ties back to you said early, and we've talked about purpose throughout this. I could see when I was looking at the the website and the work that you're doing that there is a level a high level of purpose here. That that ha- if if the purpose isn't really held tight, I imagine it'd be much trickier to do the work that you're trying to do to bring these organizations together to get their time, their energy. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that because I think also in organizations this way that we can align people to purpose, right? Everybody comes in with their own objectives, with their own values. And I think the work of an organization is how do we attach all those unique people to a purpose, to our, you know, the values that are going to get the organization towards its mission. And it seems like something that you do a lot of communicating this and how do you rally people around these ideas of purpose and mission? So I'd love to hear more about that from your perspective. So what I found with the tech council internally is that I inherited an organization which already had a great sense of purpose. So the person who'd founded it before me had really thought very hard about this and had already built a really wonderful culture amongst the 25 member companies that were there. And it was a very entrepreneurial culture, a very collaborative culture, supportive. He thought really hard about diversity. So we have a female chair, Robin Denholm, global chair of Tesla. So uh, a pretty eminent person, but, you know, he he was very deliberate when he put our board composition together to have small and large companies and, and have, you know, women and men and have people from different cultural backgrounds and people from different geographies uh, and different types of experience. So, you know, it was interesting because I don't know that I've ever walked into an organisation that was so thoughtfully constructed 
before and already had such a great culture in place and it made a huge difference actually particularly because I went in with one month's notice before we launched and then everything grew incredibly fast after that Um, but it was just having the good bones of that culture and that foundation in place made all that growth possible uh, and, and sort of made it easy to scale that sense of purpose I think um, without losing some of the nicer more intimate components of our culture and I have thought a bit about because when I inherited it we hadn't launched publicly and so I had to probably think more about what is the culture we convey externally and I thought a lot about how we can't really expect as an industry that governments or communities would get behind the idea of changing our training system or fixing our R&D system so that it makes sense for software if they don't understand the benefit to the community of that change. And so that's why when we launched, we worked out these three goals around having a million people in tech jobs, in contributing to $50 billion to the economy and to um, being a great place to found and scale companies because we thought unless as an industry we explain first what's possible and the benefits, you know, no one will necessarily invest in thinking through with us how to get there. And I think sometimes in public policy you can get so focused on responding to like the little individual issue and not take the time just to explain to people that bigger picture benefit. And and policies can be really technical, like, you know, trying to explain why our R&D system doesn't work for software is a very laborious kind of conversation. So sometimes it's actually easier to tell people this is this is the benefit, this is the outcome, and then this is why we should fix it rather than bombing them with with lots of technical detail that can actually kind of exclude people from the conversation as well. So, you know, I think about that a lot and I think that's something, you know, because I generally believe, as I said, like growing up in those small country towns and not having access to technology and then later, you know, living in cities and seeing the difference it can make to the types of jobs you can have to just how readily you can communicate with people to the services you get in the communities, I feel really passionate about that you know the role of technology in bridging those gaps but I think we as technologists also have to think about how we explain that to people yeah it sounds like the answer comes back to what we discussed before that to align people to purpose would be really clear on the purpose and able to communicate that you know quickly it's not in the details it's not in the policy it's bigger and then we can work our way backwards but focusing on that what um what are some concerns or challenges? Technology has so much promise, but also can bring some challenges and, and ultimately limit. So what are some of the challenges and the things that you're keeping an eye on as like potential problems and things we need to be keeping, be aware of and thinking about as we continue developing our technology? So I think the jobs and skills point is really important because, you know, particularly in Australia, we didn't historically have too much of a tech sector. So, so many of people's sense of the careers that you could have in Australia and our training systems, they're just not geared to get people into those jobs, even though they're actually mm. one of the biggest sources of opportunity. So that I think is, I think that's an opportunity, but I think it's a, just a challenge to kind of try and repoint everyone's expectations and, and make sure the right employment pathways are there and the training system works. And that's important because it's one thing to create the jobs, but if you aren't helping people fill them you're not really getting the benefit of creating them and it creates a lot of pain points for companies because the company can't grow and and things like that I think that a second challenge is around questions like data and AI and ethics and privacy but I think they're often more nuanced than is sometimes the case in the way they're presented uh, in the media because 
you know, one thing I've said in my career is you get this tension sometimes between user consent versus public interest value of data. So, for example, a lot of companies now have developed data repositories. If you're a software company and you've been providing software as a service to users, you've probably collected some data. And and my experience is a lot of those companies are very, very reticent about using the data because they have subscription relationships with their customers and, and relationships of trust. So they don't want to do anything to sort of jeopardize that relationship or abuse that relationship. But then I sort of see a lot of governments actually <laughs> wanting access to the data or wanting to mandate data collection because they're looking at, you know, thinking, well, maybe I could get more visibility on tax trends or, you know, sometimes these companies have got really good data on jobs trends or how small businesses are performing or, workplace health and safety trends and so there's think actually thinking through when does data have a public value and when is it actually in the public interest for it to be analyzed say in an aggregated anonymous way and what does that mean for consent I think there's some really important questions there and uh, you know and similarly with AI and automated decision making there's many instances I think where AI improves the quality decisions like a lot of the criticism that is sometimes leveled at AI about, oh, the decision might be biased or might be unrepresentative, and then I kind of go, okay, but if you weren't making that decision with data, if humans are making it, like, actually a lot of those... Could be worse. ...probably <laughs> even more present. We just, like, we haven't trained ourselves to think of being aware of them and critiquing them. So then the question should be, like, how would you make better decisions and what combination of humans and machine learning would you have to do it and how would you put the safeguards in place is the more important question. So there's that. And then I think... Um, around things like tax and investment models. You know, every sort of successful company these days is an exporting company. They're usually global in nature. They work with talent from all around the world. But, you know, we're also kind of shifting back into this slightly more isolationist way of thinking Mm -hmm. in the world with this renewed focus on sovereignty and secure supply chains. And I think there's a tension there because often the best companies, as I said, grew because they were global, so not constraining to too great a degree that ability to keep trading and exporting and and working with talent from around the world because it's actually a really important part of good entrepreneurialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and being responsible in the process. I'm going to ask this next question carefully because I my fear is I don't want it to come across like I'm asking you to like choose who's your favorite child. So I'll ask it in this way. You have such a unique purview over uh, some amazing technology companies. Are there a few things from some of these companies that really stand out to you that have inspired you or just would love to share with the world? Like, because you see so much. So maybe some of your partner companies are doing or things that you've seen that are really unique and stand out. I am really fascinated by the B2B SaaS trend in Australia and the making software for SMEs. Like, I think every time I go and meet the people working in that space and I hear the story of how they, you know, often were working with small companies and then found they were really struggling to navigate workplace relation rules or, you know, Luke Ania, who founded Safety Culture, was a private investigator in a regional town in Australia and he thought, I don't want to be the person who's always coming in after the accident and trying to figure out how it happened. I want to be the person who prevents those accidents from happening in the workplace in the first place and that led him to found Safety Culture. I find that really inspiring because I think I sometimes say it's a little bit like boring tech, like people don't get as excited sometimes in thinking about these sort of business applications, but I actually think they often make a real difference to people's lives. Like Culture App is helping people be engaged and happy at work and, and making workplaces 
more productive and that's so important given how much time we spend at work I think safety culture example you know I think about deputy and those rostering apps and and what it must have been like to be a small business in a pandemic trying if you're in aged care trying to roster staff safely on and make sure that people weren't mingling or restaurants trying to stay open and I don't know how they would have been doing it to be honest without some of those tools I think I get really excited by edtech that's a Mm -hmm. growing part of Australia so I think some of the most inspiring applications I've heard are things like Forage which is an Australian company that's developed virtual work experience you know again growing up in the country it wasn't very practical to to try lots of jobs but I can see with models like that it opens up that ability to to understand careers for people reskilling or you know in, in more disadvantaged backgrounds I think uh, lots of really exciting new learning companies like Go One or Open Learning or Academy XI who are really rethinking how people train I find that super exciting. And then they've got Quantum Australia's actually got a real strength in quantum computing. Mm. And we get actually 3.6% of all the world's VC that's invested in quantum comes to Australia, even though our global share of GDP is only 1.6%. So it's actually the top area where the world invests in us. Um, So I love working with those companies. We have some of our membership. And I just think there's just to work in a field where you have to have such a long-range vision and, and be working on developments that don't always, you know, can take sort of 10 to 20 years to commercialise. I think I think they've got really exciting potential, but it's also, you know, a very visionary field. Yeah. I want to say I really appreciate it. Multiple times now you've you've gone back to your childhood. And I think it's it's neat to hear. I think for me, some of my in my case challenges professionally have really led to my I was always interested in people, but can the workplace be better? And that's really inspired me. And you keep going back to, I think, how you pull off of your experience growing up and how technology can really connect people that are can feel disconnected. And it's just, it's just a theme here. And I think for a lot of people, when they're finding their purpose or what they want to do in life, you know, what are they about? Like pulling on those experiences. I don't know if it was challenging or not for you. It sounds like it was nice, but you keep going back to that. And the idea that you grew up so remote and now you're at the at the center of, you know, the hub of the technology industry in Australia. And they it, it feels like there's a bit of a, like this idea of connectivity, broadcasting, right, or journalism that is kind of it, it, it's almost like part of your core. Yeah, I think I was always fascinated by the things that bring a community together at scale. Partly because I was on the one hand growing up in these really tiny towns that just didn't have access to newspapers or TV channels, as I said, or, or radio. Um, but then I kind of had my home life was very rich in conversation and stories about the rest of the world. So. But also I like to talk about it because I think sometimes people have a perception that, you know, you can only get into these roles if you were living in cities or if you went and did a technical degree or you went to a private school. Like, and none of those things were true for me. And I think unless you kind of open about that, it just can feed preconceptions about how you can get into industries. What Kate is saying here really resonates with me. I had to go to the military to pay for college, and following the military, I returned to Florida to complete my undergraduate degree, and then with very little to my name, I packed my car and moved to California. However, once I arrived and began to build a career in the tech space as a white male, I often wondered if people just assumed that I went to a great school, came from a certain type of upbringing, and easily landed in the tech world of the Bay Area. And in no way does this take away from the privilege that I did have to support me and my journey. And I do know that many others could have done what I've done, but were never afforded the opportunity. However, I really like how Kate is breaking down these preconceptions and saying, no, I didn't grow up that way. And this is what I've done and how I've done it. 
I just want to change gears a bit, and, and I love have we have we spoken your your command of the the data and the research. So, great resignation. I like to talk about the great transformation. Something's happening. It's so interesting and unique. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on this this transformation, the shift, and how you're thinking about it from the tech industry perspective. Have you seen anything interesting that we you know that 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 highlights something here for you, or that you'd like to share with others, and just where you see this transformation taking us? There's a really interesting thing about Australia is we have not seen this trend here. Mm. And actually, over about the last decade in Australia, pre-pandemic, the rates at which people were changing jobs had decreased. And there's actually some really good evidence that have come out that we have a problem of low wage growth in Australia, like a lot of countries. But there was actually some really interesting work done by our Treasury to say the fact that people are changing jobs less often is actually contributing to this because the primary way someone gets a pay rise is when they change jobs, not when they stay within a company and get promoted because the increments tend to be smaller. So Australia's experience in terms of its employment has also being different to the rest of the world, we had like a big hit to unemployment, like a lot of markets when in the first year of the pandemic, when we went into a national lockdown, but we very quickly bounced back. And then we had a second lockdown last year, which saw it rise a bit again, but it's bounced back really quickly again to the point where our unemployment is lower now than it was pre-pandemic. And we're one of the few countries in the world to get there. Now, that's also because we were one of the few countries in the world that closed its borders to migration. So we've had a net drop in about, about 300,000 people in the workforce. But um, but, you know, women's participation, for example, has has grown and it's certainly um, was getting to the point that was above uh, the pre-pandemic again. So for all those reasons, you would think that if anyone was going to have a great resignation, like we would have been primed for it because we had more jobs, growing participation, but it, it hasn't really fully translated yet. And there's the theory that maybe, you know, some people have been feeling insecure, that they've just been through so much change in the last couple of years, because we've had not only pandemic, we had really terrible national bushfires. Um, yeah. at, the, at the start of 2020, we've had some really terrible floods at the moment that people are just feeling a bit overwhelmed and insecure and and just like they need stability actually rather than necessarily new change and you know it's what happens if you switch into that new job and then something goes wrong like will your new employer keep you on will they look after you is it better to stay so yeah so we've actually had the highest rates of new job ads for example but the lowest rates of applicants interesting well that's wonderful to hear i did not realize maybe because you know coltramp is a global organization and i'm seeing how some of these companies are dealing with it in in other areas but to know locally in australia that that's not the experience that's happening it would actually be a healthy thing if more people were changing jobs. I think it would actually contribute to people's pay going up. I think that um, sometimes these times of change are a good chance for people to reskill and transition. And, you know, as I said, I look at the tech sector and I think there's lots of really great jobs in there that people haven't probably been considering in the past. So I think it would actually be a really providential time for people to move into them and they're actually more secure than a lot of jobs and better paid. So those things that have maybe been putting people back are not things they need to worry about in making that transition. Nobody's said that yet on the inter- on the podcast, that, uh, but it's it's unfortunate sometimes that that's the case. You have to leave your job to move to, to get higher pay, but that's we're not going to tackle that right now. <laughs> um, but, but I do agree. That is the reality and uh, pragmatic approach final it's the the flip question and i ask everybody you know this season we're ending our interviews with what's the big question you have so if if you had a a big question to ask what would it be i think the question i think about a lot that i don't have an answer to as a leader is 
It's just how do you grow well as an organisation and make sure that you can still be inclusive and have a sense of community and and have that, you know, more intimate relationships with people but then also not exclude people because if you only engage in at that personal level, like say in my case we now have 125 members and all those members have lots of people, like then you actually start excluding people as well because you only have so much time or you're not always updating people frequently enough. So I think a lot about, yeah, how do you strike that balance when you're a fast-growing organisation of holding on to your values and holding on to those really lovely intimate features uh, and personal qualities and but also scaling well? I love thinking about these things. I'll take a stab at that. And at the same time, we also ask these questions for our audience to think about as well. Two things that, that came up for me. One is what you spoke about scaling uh, your culture and your values. Um, I do think, especially for smaller companies, it's it's important to re- revisit your values because what the values were when you're five people to 30 is different. Look, I've been at Culture Amp now. We've had four values all along. I think we found the sweet spot and that's important, but they should be, at four is important. I mean, and I think Didier even said he'd prefer there were three. That these are these core fundamental pieces. So I think finding those, but also, what do you leave along the way? That things do change in a culture. And it's, you know, I've heard from a lot of different leaders talking about this the idea that we have to have hold space for some of our rituals, some of what we do can't, has to change and move. But the other piece that I, I want to hit on, I think, to your bigger question of, of, of that, that, and I mean, I say this because it's what we do, but I really believe in it, is this idea of listening. And this listening isn't running a survey. You know, we talk about this idea of collect, understand, and act, right? To run a great survey at whatever size, if you're larger using a tool like ours, that we've done all that work, so you can use that. But then you now have all that data. That's a lot of data. What do you do with it? So having the right tools to understand that data and then finally take action. So how do we take that data and get it into the leaders and managers' hands in a way that they can take that and understand what are the most important things to focus on and how do we take action? And then, you know, our symbol is an Enzo, right, which is this this, this idea of it's imperfection. It's a one, it's a movement, but then you repeat. And I think that's what we're always trying to convey is this idea of collect, understand, act, repeat, collect, understand, act, repeat. It's a, it's a movement. It's a conversation. I think if you get good at it, you realize it's no one person. There's no leader that has the answer. It is the, it's that movement. It's that action. You know, and then there's some subtlety on, on how we talk about bringing that in the organization. But I, I have to imagine there's probably a lot of things that can go into that. But when companies are good at taking any individual out of the equation and using data and this process of collect, understand, act, repeat, that you stay most iterative and you you move as best as possible with the flow of, of your organization. What is changing? What's not changing? What needs to leave? What doesn't? And if you sit in a room and think you know, you don't know. We see that in the data. You can take a, a, a particular question and look at it across. We communicate openly and honestly and then slice it by level. Almost always senior leaders think they're doing such a great job and then you, you move it back to a more junior employee and there's a, a 10 point split, right? And to show leaders that data helps them understand that it's okay. This is your belief, but your that that belief's dictating your responses, and that's not how people feel. So, how do we use data in that conversation? And I think that's what that collect, understand, act, repeat cycle. If you do it well, provides. That's a really good answer. Thank you. Hey, Kate. Thank you. Uh, I learned a lot more about policy in this process and how this plays in. That it's not just about any one organization. That we need to come together as community, and there's a lot of policy and things that that needs to be part of the conversation and. Uh, you brought that to life and just thank you for your passion and who you are and being, you know, authentic about your, your life upbringing and how it informs you today. So uh, thanks for taking the time to be with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Leonie. And I'm Marcus. And we're the founders of Sprouter. 
Sprouter is a global ecosystem of experts and solution providers who can help you solve your most complex challenges in people, performance and culture. We know change isn't always easy. We want to offer you a 30-minute discovery course so you can share some of your challenges, ideas and insights. We create a safe and productive thinking space to help you gain clarity, identify priorities and plan your next steps. So let's start a conversation. Head to sprouter.com.